Morning. Morning. It'll take a little while to get there, but if you just uh, have your Bibles ready at uh, Romans chapter 11, we're continuing to study a series in Paul's letter to the Romans. And so this morning we once again turn our attention to the church in first century Rome. I just want to begin by reminding that the reason Paul was writing them uh, was to preserve unity. You see, there was a very real threat that the church could split into separate Gentile and Jewish fellowships. So Paul wrote out an urgent need to prevent this from happening. Now, when we think about it, this would have actually been the second time that the church had been separated in this way. Although on the first occasion, it wasn't a consequence of their own actions. Now, we don't know exactly how the church in Rome began, However, we can piece together a likely scenario when we read the book of Acts. So we know that during the Feast of Passover, when Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead on the third day, that there would have been Jews from Rome present. And there were also Jews from Rome present, possibly many of them the same people, seven weeks later at the Feast of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the apostles and others. We read about that in Acts chapter 2. We can therefore suggest that in all likelihood, Jews from Rome would have been among the first converts to the Christian faith and that it was these converts who began the church there upon their return. So we can be confident in asserting that the church in Rome was first made up of believers from a Jewish background and that these were faithful men and women who diligently studied and taught the scriptures and who took seriously the need to preach the gospel. Their faithfulness in proclaiming the gospel became widely known. And as a consequence, people of Gentile ancestry began to believe the gospel, became disciples and entered the church. Given that the Gentiles were more receptive to the gospel, their numbers as a proportion of the church grew rapidly. Now at the time, they were happy to learn and be discipled under a a Jewish leadership. And clearly these men were very good leaders. They gave them a thorough grounding in the Old Testament scriptures and taught them how to live lives faithful to God. Then the first division became between the Jewish and Gentile believers. But it had nothing to do with the internal affairs of the church. You see, in AD 49, the Roman Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome, including the leaders of the church. This left the Gentile believers to continue the work. They would therefore have to have assumed the leadership and the teaching roles that the Jewish believers had once originally held. Now, the fact that they were able to do so is a testament to the original leaders. See, one of the tests of good leadership is a recognition that this role does not belong to them indefinitely. Good leaders will always look for those among the body who can be taught and trained to continue the work after they have moved on. Now, the circumstances that led to them leaving Rome may or may not have been anticipated. We don't know for sure. However, by the grace of God and by the God-given wisdom and diligence of those original leaders... The church not only survived, but grew and flourished after their departure. Now, we can't be absolutely certain how long the Jews were absent. 
But we do know that it was at least five years. You see, Claudius gave the order in AD 49, and he died in AD 54. And under the new emperor, Nero, the Jews were allowed back. We don't know exactly how long after he took over as emperor. Now, upon their return, following what I would imagine was initially a genuine welcome, as you can imagine, difficulties would have begun to surface. For example, who would now lead the church? The original Jewish leaders? Or the Gentiles who had overseen the growth and prospering of the church in their long absence? See, it's easy to understand the inevitable tension. From the Jewish perspective, it would require uh, an enormous humility to sit under the instruction and authority of those who had once been their disciples. From the Gentiles' perspective, it would mean taking a backward step, something of a regression. However, I do believe that the tensions that had arisen wasn't just a question of personal leadership ambition. It went much deeper than that. There was an underlying spiritual dimension that was the real source of the tension. I've little doubt that during the enforced absence of the Jews, that some among the Gentiles began to ask themselves why God had allowed this. They had already observed the unnatural resistance of unbelieving Jews to the gospel. They had seen, even while still under Jewish leadership, the church becoming increasingly Gentile in character. It's therefore highly likely that during this time that the thinking began to emerge and take root that God had replaced Israel as his chosen people with the Gentile church. And this, I believe, was the underlying issue fueling the tension that existed between these two groups. And the reluctance of the Gentiles to allow the returning Jews to fully integrate back into the church could well have been because some of the Gentiles had managed to convince themselves that it would be against God's will to do so. And it's this issue that Paul is addressing throughout chapters 9 to 11. See, although outward circumstances appeared, at least to some of the Gentiles, to justify this viewpoint, it was contrary to the word of God, and therefore suggested that the word of God had failed. In our previous studies, we've looked at how Paul demonstrated that not only has the word of God not failed, but also shown how and why it cannot fail. And we've also begun to to consider how Paul explains the current spiritual condition of the majority of the Jewish people in the light of God's word. See, in chapter 11, Paul clearly states that the reason for their resistance to receiving the gospel and their diminishing representation in the church is due to the fact that God has hardened them. Or as the New King James Version states, God has blinded them to the truth. Now, whether the word is correctly translated blinded, as in some versions, or hardened in others, the point that Paul is making is this. God is responsible for their current insensitivity to understanding and receiving the gospel. Now, this explanation does not sit well with people, and it can lead people to think that God is being unfair. And Paul is aware of this, so he answers the charge in chapter 9. And we need to be reminded that mercy, by its very nature, is undeserved, so that no one has the right to tell God who he should have mercy upon 
and who he can harden. If we're to understand God's purposes in the matter, we need to first rid ourselves of this fleshly attitude that wants to talk back to God. And when we consider more deeply the statement that God has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens, in the light of the examples that Paul gives in chapter 9, we see what has been made plain throughout the whole of Scripture. God shows mercy to those who will genuinely humble themselves and ask for it. And he hardens those who stubbornly and persistently refuse to do so. As I stated last time, this is a testable hypothesis. The proof of which can be clearly seen in the case he makes regarding unbelieving Israel in chapter 10. Paul makes clear that Israel was was so zealously trying to establish their own righteousness that they had missed what the Old Testament scriptures so clearly taught. See, the Old Testament clearly teaches that God justifies the ungodly by crediting them with his own righteousness by faith. (coughs) However, though the Jews outwardly revered the Old Testament scriptures, the reason they had deviated from this truth is because in practice they paid far more attention to the interpretations and philosophies of men with their so-called written and oral traditions than they did to the straightforward teaching of the scriptures itself. And even though they had had ample opportunity to hear and understand the gospel, they refused to receive it. To do so would mean that they had to give up their own self-righteousness through trying to keep the law that they dedicated their whole lives to. And sadly, on account of their pride, they could not bring themselves to do so. And so Paul concluded chapter 10 by writing down God's thoughts on the matter, which were revealed through the prophet Isaiah. All day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, as a consequence of their own stubborn refusal to receive God's mercy, God has hardened or blinded them. In other words, he's given them over to what they've chosen for themselves. Now, remember, we're studying an actual letter that would have been read aloud in the church. And it's easy to imagine at this point in its reading, some of the Gentiles smiling knowingly to each other and thinking to themselves, I told you so, they've brought it upon themselves. God has hardened them so that they cannot believe and replaced them with us, Gentiles who do. However, if they'd listened more carefully, they would have noticed that the hardening or blindness that God has caused to come upon them does not mean that God has given them up or abandoned them. It does not mean that there is now no hope either for individual Jews or indeed the nation as a whole. Earlier in the letter, at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul wrote he has great sorrow and continual grief in his heart. And he adds at the beginning of chapter 10 that his heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now, if the hardening they had been subjected to meant that there was no hope, why would Paul lie awake at night in anguish praying for them? So what does this hardening actually mean? What is its significance? What purpose does it serve? Is it an expression of God's judgment? Or is mercy? And how should believers respond? 
See, these are the questions that Paul now turns his attention to and addresses them in chapter 11. Now, just before reading chapter 11, I want at this point to pay tribute to David Pawson. See, well over 20 years ago, he produced a series called Unlocking the Bible. And this was born out of a conviction that good teaching will always encourage Christians to read and understand the Bible for themselves. And as the title would suggest, its aim is to make the Bible more accessible by getting the reader to first consider the context of the book they're reading. When was it written? To whom was it written? Why was it written? What was its literacy, literary style? Is it poetry, historical account or prophecy concerning the, uh, concerning the future? Now, one of the useful skills in Bible study that I've learned uh, as a consequence uh, of reading that series is that having read a short passage of scripture, to try and give it a title. By doing that, you have to identify the key words which sum up its meaning. And this ability to do, and the ability to do this gives an indication as to how well you've understood what you've just read. Now, in his teaching on Romans 11, David actually managed to sum up this question of the hardening and blinding of Israel in four words, each beginning with the letter R. And each of these words provides a structure that brings out of the meaning of the chapter very clearly. Now, I couldn't improve upon that, so I've decided that today I'm actually going to use his four headings. Okay, so the title when you receive the notes of this talk is The Four R's. Now, as we read this, the chapter, I want you to keep these four words in mind, as I believe uh, that they serve to bring out the meaning more clearly. And the first word we need to pay attention to is rejection, because Paul begins by asking the question, has God rejected Israel? The second word is recovered. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Or in other words, can they be recovered? The third word is replaced. Have they been replaced? And Paul considers this with the illustration of the olive tree. And lastly, restored. Will they as a nation be restored? So let's, with that in mind, read through chapter 11 and allow it God's word to speak to us as we do. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have attained it. And the rest were blinded, just as it is written, 
God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see and bow their backs always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will then say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion." That blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Concerning the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Now I'm going to say the, 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 the last three um, 
verses, uh, last four verses to the end. Right from the start of chapter 11, Paul deals emphatically with the question, has God rejected Israel as his chosen people? And he responds with a resounding no. Certainly not, or by no means, as in other versions, probably doesn't capture the extent to which Paul is stressing his response. Even the suggestion that God would reject his people is completely unthinkable. Now, having made such an absolute statement, Paul realises that such statements cannot be made by a mere human being without substantiation. God can make these statements, but people can't. So Paul undergirds his statement with supporting evidence. And the first piece of supporting evidence that he directs his attention to is himself. See, Paul is a man whose Christian credentials are beyond question. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. He has worked harder than the other apostles. And in the latter part of chapter 8, gave some indication as to the extent that he has suffered for his faith. He is beyond doubt a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus. So in verse 1, Paul is equally keen to remind them of his Jewish credentials. So when he writes, I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin, he is stating that you cannot get more Jewish than me. And since God has not rejected me, you cannot say he has rejected his people. Now, Paul is really addressing here the issue that the numbers of Christians from Jewish ancestry is so small. And given the current trend of resisting the gospel, their representation in the church is likely to go on diminishing. However, this should not lead one to the conclusion that God has finished with them. In referring to Elijah, he's pointing out that in the past, there have been occasions where, there, where the number of genuine believers in the God of Israel, this is the God who justifies the ungodly through faith, that is faithful Israel, there have been times in the past when their numbers have been very small. And Elijah even came to believe that he was the last one. So he mistakenly thought that the people of God were about to become extinct. But God comforted him by informing them that he had, by grace, preserved for himself a remnant of 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. You see, in those days, under the influence of their royal family, King Ahab and the evil Queen Jezebel, Israel had fallen into idolatry. Now, that does not mean that he had completely given up worshipping the God of Israel but rather that they came to see him as just one God among many others. They came to see the exclusivity of worshipping the one true God and the distinctiveness that he expected in their character and conduct as being narrow-minded, intolerant and bigoted. They fell for the lie that they needed to be inclusive and tolerant of other faiths, beliefs and practices of the surrounding nations. Now, this is what theologians call syncretism. It has a word. It's the mixing of faith. Interfaith worship was therefore very much characteristic of the life of Israel under Ahab and Jezebel. And the temptation to flow with the tide of popular public opinion would have been hard to resist. 
But God preserved a remnant by grace. Now, grace is not an irresistible force, as some would suppose, but rather, as John Hayward explained to us the other week, it's an enabling and an empowering to go on living according to God's will. Now, as a young man, I'm just going to mention David Pawson once more, and whether he, was, he said this in context with Romans, I really don't know. I can't remember the context in which he said it. But as a young man, he would often ask himself the question, how can I be sure that I would stand up under severe trial and persecution? I'm sure we probably all thought that ourselves. So he asked for the wise counsel of an older, more mature Christian. And the advice he was given, I think, is something that we should all carefully consider. See, the minister uh, advised him that if he was careful to remain faithful in small things, then God would give him the grace to stand firm in the bigger things. Now, this is what Tom has been talking about earlier today. It's what's regularly taught here. Because time and again, we've been reminded that worship isn't for just for two hours on a Sunday. It extends to the minutest details of our lives. How we conduct ourselves when driving the car, or walking the dog, or shopping in the supermarket. For when we are faithful in the small things, regardless of how seemingly insignificant they may be, God will give us the grace to stand firm, even in the severest of trials. So the point Paul has made is that just as in the days of Elijah, when God gave a remnant the grace to stand firm and remain faithful, the same is true in Paul's day. Though the number of Jewish believers in Jesus were few, by grace, God had preserved a remnant. He most certainly had not rejected his people. But what about the rest? Doesn't that mean God has rejected them? As Paul goes on to explain, no, it doesn't. Paul does not. Paul does say that God has made them insensitive to the truth. He admits they have indeed stumbled, but they most certainly have not fallen beyond recovery. The hardening or blinding is not necessarily an expression of God's judgment or a rejection of them. Actually, when we consider this, it's an expression of his mercy. It demonstrates the lengths he is prepared to go to to bring them to faith. See, the purpose, Paul explains, of making them insensitive to the gospel is to provoke them to jealousy. Now, this might not immediately make sense to us. We need to reason it through. And the first thing we need to understand is what the word jealous actually means. You see, I need to remind you at this point that through common usage, words mean, the meaning of words can change over time. So when the translators first selected the word jealous, the meaning it had at the time is not necessarily how we understand it now. Allow me to illustrate this. Let me ask you a question. Is being jealous a good thing? Now, many of you will be thinking, well, he wants me to say yes, but inside, I'm thinking no. And this tension becomes even more apparent when I remind you of the scripture that tells us that our God is a jealous God. So why do we have this tension? It's because over time, we have come to understand the word jealous as being synonymous with the word envy. And this I can easily prove, because of those of you who are now reading the NIV, 
can't find the word jealous throughout chapters 10 and 11, you've got the word envy in, in there instead. Now, although there is a similarity between these words, there is also a, a clear and important distinction, as I will attempt to explain. Nearly 22 years ago, Diana and I made a covenant before God when we got married. We became one flesh. I became hers and she became mine. Now, supposing another man started paying undue attention to Diana with a view to breaking our relationship. In such circumstances, not only do I have the right to be jealous, but it would indicate that there was something seriously wrong if I were not so. So jealousy is a right response when someone generally threatens to take someone or something rightly belonging to you. Now let's contrast with this with the word envy. See, envy is the emotion behind covetousness. And in the 10th commandment we read, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife, house, field, servants, animals, and so on. In other words, envy is to do with desiring for yourself what rightly belongs to someone else. Do you see the distinction? So provoking to jealousy means letting it be known that we have received something originally intended for them. Now before moving on, I need to qualify what I've just said. Jealousy is a right response to a genuine threat. Over-possessiveness resulting from emotional insecurity and anxiety is not. We also need to remember that jealousy does not entitle anyone to vengeance. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, and we would do well, be, do well to be ever mindful of that. So how are we to, in practice, provoke unbelieving Jews to jealousy? We do so by telling them we have received what God first intended to give them. We have been blessed by their God, the God of Israel. We have received salvation through their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Their God, the God of Israel, has justified us by faith, not because we deserved it, but because in his mercy he justifies the ungodly, just as he did with Abraham, the father of their faith, who has become the father of our faith too. We provoke them to jealousy by telling them that not only have we received the blessings that God first intended for them, but also that those blessings are still available to them. That God still loves them and wants to give them those blessings. So provoking the unbelieving Jews is meant to bring them to repentance. It is intended to bring them to their senses so that they abandon their dependence on establishing their own self-righteousness. And when they see Gentiles, whom they know most certainly do not deserve God's blessing, actually receiving God's blessing, it should provoke them. It should provoke them to ask why. Why is it that I'm not receiving God's blessing when the undeserving Gentiles are? It should provoke them to look again into the scriptures they so revere and recognise that when Isaiah wrote, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation, that the fulfilment of that very prophecy is happening right before their eyes. It should provoke them to look again at the scriptures that clearly tell them that God justifies the ungodly on the basis of faith and that he regards the righteousness of man as but filthy rags. 
So when they see the ungodly Gentiles being justified by faith, it should cause them to reconsider their own position and lead them to the conclusion that they should give up any thought that they can establish their own righteousness through works of the law. The blinding of unbelieving Israel is meant to provoke them to jealousy for the purpose of bringing them to repentance. Now this is the approach that Paul had found most successful in reaching unbelieving Jews. And the reason he used this approach is clear. It's because he knew and understand what Is- uh, and understood what Isaiah had written and he had simply applied the clear teaching of the Old Testament scripture to his own situation. Well, there's a lesson for us. He writes, If by any means I might provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh, in order that I might save some. Now, so far in his argument, Paul has been considering the issue from a predominantly Jewish perspective. However, at this point, he switches to a Gentile one. Having received the blessings God had first intended to give Israel, it is understandable why some come to the conclusion that the Gentile churches replace them. Let's just take the statement that Peter writes in his first letter. You can find this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter writes, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Now, quite clearly, Peter is talking to Christians who were of a predominantly Gentile origin. Because he goes on in the next verse, verse 10, he states that he's talking to those who were once not a people, but are now the people of God. Now that is very similar to what Isaiah said. I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation, not a people. Now these promises (coughs) made to the Gentile church were the very promises God had originally made to Israel. And you can read them in the book of Exodus, chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. So understandably, this has led some to conclude that Israel has been replaced by the Gentile church. So Paul now goes on to consider the third of our R words, replacement. And he makes clear that he is particularly addressing the Gentiles as he does so. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. He explains that the fact that they have obtained those blessings does not necessarily mean they have replaced Israel. Rather they should view themselves as having been included into and sharing in those blessings as being a more accurate appreciation of what is actually occurring. And to aid their understanding, he describes the image of the olive tree in verses 16 through to 24. Now, I've already spent some time discussing the olive tree in a a previous talk called Gratitude, Not Attitude. So here I will restrict myself to a few additional comments. Firstly, Paul does concede that a replacement of sort has occurred. Natural branches have been cut off. They haven't simply been pruned they've been cut off because of unbelief. These branches obviously are intended to represent unbelieving Israel. However, some natural branches do still remain as part of the tree, as do the roots and the trunk. 
So any replacement, therefore, has been limited or partial. The Gentile believers are the unnatural wild olive branches that have been grafted in by the goodness, or as in some versions say, kindness of God. Their position is therefore not a cause for arrogance, thinking that it's due to qualities within themselves. Neither is it a cause for haughtiness. There is nothing special about them that they should look contemptuously towards the Jews. Nor does it justify conceitedness, thinking that they know all the answers. In fact, rather than thinking about themselves and their own position, Paul tells them to focus their attention on God and pay careful consideration to both his goodness and his severity in particular. See, God has told us in his word to preach the whole counsel of God. We must therefore speak not only of his goodness, as we are apt to do so in modern Western churches, leading to an over-familiarity that's manifested as an unwarranted palliness, but we must also speak of his severity. You see, our God does judge sin, and he will not allow wickedness to go unchecked indefinitely. And Bible history does record many occasions where his judgment has come upon mankind. However, we've become very good at desensitising ourselves by reducing historical counts like the flood of Noah or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah to myth and legend in order to convince ourselves that it will never happen. The message Paul gives to his Gentile readers is a sobering one, not just for them but for all who read his words. If natural branches can be broke off through, broken off through unbelief, do not think the same cannot happen to you if you do not continue in his kindness. It's an appeal to go on believing, to continue living a life of faith and a warning against falling into a life of deliberate, willful and persistent unbelief. The simple message is this, if it can happen to them, it can happen to you. And God will judge the wicked. If he did not, he would cease to be a good God. However, we need to temper that by understanding that God is long-suffering and forbearing. He delays his judgments in order to give people every opportunity to turn from their wicked ways. Peter wrote, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but come to repentance. And this is the very point that Paul is, brings out in the illustration of the olive tree. Because Paul goes on to explain that the natural branches can be grafted back into the tree once more. And indeed will be if they do not continue in unbelief. You see, God is being patient with them, giving them time to come to repentance, time to turn from unbelief to belief. So Paul is confirming what he's already emphatically stated. They have not fallen beyond recovery. Now make no mistake, in their current state of being cut off, they are in a precarious position. If they die in unbelief, they will face a godless eternity. But their situation is not beyond hope, uh, is not beyond hope of recovery. And it is this fact 
that should govern our attitude and behaviour towards them. Instead of adopting an arrogant, haughty and conceited attitude, we should rather learn from Paul and, like him, agonise over them. Pray for their salvation. Try to reach out to them and provoke them to jealousy, as the scripture says. So individual unbelieving Jews can be recovered and grafted back. But what about the nation as a whole? Will it be restored? So we come now to the fourth R. Now Paul's already mentioned this in verses 12 and 15. In verse 12 he writes, Now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? See, as verse 12 makes clear, for Paul it was not so much a case of if, but when. Now Paul not only regards this as a certainty, but it's a certainty that will result in enormous blessing for the entire world, as he confirms in verse 15 when he writes, For their being cast away is the reconciling of the world. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So clearly for Paul, their restoration is not so much a case of if but when. Now he does not go into specific details concerning the actual timing. The when is to emphasise its certainty rather than an encouragement to speculate on the details of the actual time. However, Paul does give an indication about the timing in verse 25 when he says that the hardness or blindness that Israel is currently experiencing will continue until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now we can be fairly sure, therefore, that this statement is referring to a time either coinciding with or just before the return of Jesus. See, when Jesus was taught about the events leading up to his return, he clearly stated that the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Now clearly the fullness of the Gentiles coming in is very closely related to the gospel being preached to all nations. So this fact gives us confidence that the removal of Israel's blindness and their subsequent salvation and restoration will be at this time. Now in Luke's gospel, when he records Jesus' teaching on the events leading up to his return, he talks about Jerusalem being trampled on, upon by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, Luke 21 and verse 24. Now this seems to tie in with the prophecies that we read in Zechariah, chapters 12 through 14, which describe the second coming of Jesus. And it's in these chapters that we read how the Jews will look upon the one they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. Now, I don't want to say any more concerning the timing of that restoration because it's not Paul's primary concern in this letter. He's more, he is more concerned about its certainty, for it's the certainty of their restoration that will affect his reader's attitude and behaviour to unbelieving Jews outside the church and believing Jews within it. And this is what Paul goes on to consider throughout the remainder of the letter in chapters 12 to 16. And God willing, we'll do so on future occasions. So why we cannot be certain of the exact details about the outworking of events and timings concerning Israel's restoration... We can, though, be certain in saying the following. Firstly, 
Israel's restoration will be on the basis of God's mercy. It will mean that they have to give up their dependence on trying to establish their own righteousness through observance of the Mosaic law and come to a realisation of their need for forgiveness. It will mean them recognising that God's righteousness is a free gift given on the basis of faith. And it will mean them recognising that the Lord Jesus Christ is their Messiah and that he has made the perfect sacrifice for for their sin and that his perfect sacrifice was acceptable to the Father in heaven, the proof of which being his actual bodily resurrection on the third day. In other words, the future restoration of Israel during which the Jews received their salvation would be on exactly the same basis as everybody else's, for there is no other name under heaven by which we might be saved. For God has given all men over to disobedience regardless of their ancestry. Whether we are Jew or Gentile, we are all born with Adam's fallen, sinful nature. God has given us all over to disobedience so that salvation can never be earned or deserved. It can only be and will always only be according to his mercy. And Paul reveals God's heart in this. His desire is to have mercy upon all. The gospel of salvation has been freely, fully and honestly made available to all. As Paul wrote, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And God will freely give his mercy to all who will humble themselves and ask for it. To all who will sincerely cry out to him, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Now, before bringing all this to a conclusion, I just want to give a brief summary of what I've said concerning chapter 11. Chapter 11 has been considered in terms of four questions, the key words of which, each beginning with the letter R, the so-called four R's. Firstly, Paul asked the question, has God rejected Israel? To which Paul responded in the strongest terms with an absolute no. And the evidence of this is that a remnant has been preserved by grace. Secondly, he asked, has Israel fallen beyond recovery? And again, Paul responded with an equally strongly, uh, responded equally strongly with another absolute no. Not only can they be recovered, but God has revealed in his word how best to achieve this by provoking them to jealousy. Thirdly, has Israel been replaced? And using the illustration of the olive tree, Paul made clear that those holding to such a view are not considering the whole picture. The fact that Gentiles received blessings originally given to the Jews does not imply replacement of, but rather inclusion into the people of God. Lastly, the question of Israel's future restoration was considered, to which Paul wrote, For I do not desire that you be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. And as I said, for Paul, it wasn't so much an if, but a when, emphasising its certainty, which will represent a great blessing for the world in the future, 
and will affect the attitude of Gentiles towards Jews in the present. Now, I may not have said all that should have been said on this chapter, but I will point out that it's never been my intention to give you all the answers. Rather, my aim has been to open up these scriptures for personal study, for further consideration, inquiry and discussion. And I have not addressed important issues such as how others have drawn quite a different conclusion to the verses, verses 25 through to 27 and particularly the statement, and so all Israel will be saved. Neither have I addressed what is meant by all Israel. Some understand the meaning, this to mean every Jew alive at the time, while others would see it in the sense in which it is used when all Israel gathered at Hebron in the days of King David. And clearly this did this not mean every Jew living at the time, but rather a large representative of the nation as a whole. And I don't believe that it was Paul's intention for us to spend hours speculating on this. I believe it's one of those questions where we'll just have to wait and see when it happens. However, in bringing this study on chapters 9 to 11 to a conclusion, I would like to, as Paul did, direct our attention to God. See, I don't know how much of this Paul understood before he began writing, or indeed how much came to him as he wrote this letter. However, as he considered and communicated these things, he was left in awesome wonder at the wisdom of God. And I hope that during these four talks on chapters 9 to 11, something of this has come across. See, some of the issues we've looked at have included the importance of understanding that serious issues cannot be resolved by only considering facts and logical reasoning. Attitudes, beginning with our own, also require careful consideration and treatment. We have seen something of the sovereignty of God, how he wants us to actively cooperate with him in bringing to fruition his plans and purposes so that we can share in and experience the consequential blessings that they bring. However, the outworking of those plans are not dependent on our cooperation. We saw that in the fact that God chose to, blow, uh, to bless all nations through Israel and that he did this through those who cooperated and through those who did not. It was through their fall that salvation has come to the Gentiles, at least more quickly. And we've also considered how God has chosen to deal with the disobedience of his chosen people Israel. As a consequence of their stubborn refusal to give up trying to establish their own self-righteousness, he has given them up to their own folly. He has blinded them to the truth of the gospel and given the blessings originally intended for them to the Gentiles in order to provoke them to jealousy. And in so doing, he has made it possible for them to be reminded that he has been the God who, according to his mercy, justifies the ungodly on the basis of faith. So I can think of no better way of bringing this to a conclusion than by reading Paul's own expression of wonder. And I'll read, through, read now those final verses which I left off earlier. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out! For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has become his counsellor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him 
and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen.